and uh, we're going to be exploring together the Nicene Creed. And so before I seek to uh, extrapolate some meaning from it, please do take a look at the screen and listen to this. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance the scriptures he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead his kingdom will have no end we believe in the holy spirit the lord the giver of life who proceeds from the father and the son he is worshipped and glorified he has spoken through the prophets we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So we are beginning this uh, exciting series, exploring the Nicene Creed. It's going to be an eight-part journey, um, exploring our official statement of faith. If you are a new Christian, uh, or you're not yet a Christian, then I hope that this series of talks is going to help you to understand uh, what Christians really believe, because I know sometimes it can be a bit confusing and, and, and complicated. Uh, if you've been a Christian for years, then I pray that this series will help you to fo focus on the main thing, to sort of step back from all the peripheral stuff we can so easily get caught up in and come back to that which is essential and integral. The start of a new year to declutter a bit, to simplify and to prioritize on the main stuff. Or maybe you sometimes find it hard sharing your faith with people who don't know about Jesus. Well, I hope that this uh, series will help you to renew your confidence in the simplicity as well as the mystery of the gospel. Or maybe um, for you right now, life feels quite complicated and stormy and chaotic. And if so, my prayer for you is that this series would be kind of like an anchor that would help you find uh, a solidity in something 
that is more reliable than just your feelings and your circumstances. We just sang those beautiful words. You stay the same through the ages. When the oceans rage, I don't have to be afraid because your love never fails. The background to the Nicene Creed is this. Uh, the, the gospel of Jesus had spread uh, at an extraordinary rate around the Roman Empire. Uh, obviously, in the time of Christ, it began in this little backwater, Palestine, uh, this little sort of forgotten corner of the Roman Empire. And it just, the good news began to spread around the known world uh, against all odds because there were vicious persecutions uh, in fact, there were two empire-wide persecutions in which the Roman Empire tried to eradicate, eliminate this virus called Christianity from their cultured worldview. It was a sort of two, a genocide sponsored by the state. And in spite of vicious opposition and against all odds, the gospel by the year 312 has conquered the Roman Empire. Uh, to the extent that the emperor himself, Constantine, gets converted or claims to be converted, and suddenly the underdogs find themselves in the center of power. And Constantine decides to call together in 325 AD all the church leaders in a place called Nicaea, which is in the north of Turkey, just uh, on the southern shores of the Black Sea. And uh, he calls them together to try and really define, formulate what it is that Christians believe. Because they've got a bunch of stories, they've got the Hebrew Scriptures, they've got some letters from Paul and uh, various other writings, uh, but it's pretty chaotic. And they want to try and work out what is it that we all agree upon. And ever since then, all Christians everywhere have agreed upon the tenets of the Nicene Creed. It's the most extraordinary thing, whether you're Catholic, Orthodox, Baptist, Salvation, whatever you are, we all subscribe to this. And so, in fact, when we um, planted Emmaus and we had to register with the Charity Commission, they said, you know, what's your sort of statement of faith? And people said, we should have the Evangelical Alliance one or should list of different ones. And I thought, no way, we are going back to 325 AD, and our statement of faith as a church is the Nicene Creed. Why would you have anything else but that which all Christians agree upon? Uh, just for the sake of due diligence, there were some little niggles around some words about the Holy Spirit, and therefore the Nicene Council had to reconvene in the year 385 uh, just to sort out those uh, little details. But they really are pretty uh, insignificant, uh, unless you're Orthodox. But that's another issue. So um, uh, th th this is terribly important. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which just means, I believe. And... Uh, so here we have a statement of faith. I don't know if you've ever seen Peter Pan, maybe at the theatre or a film version or whatever. There's that bit where Captain Hook has been nastily poisoning poor little Tinkerbell and her light is fading. And someone turns to the audience and they say, she's going to die unless we do something. Clap your hands and say, I believe in fairies. 
and the crowd claps their hands. Little girls clap their hands, little boys clap their hands, grandparents clap their hands, believing in fairies, clenching their buttocks, trying to believe in fairies. And gradually, a miracle, the light comes back on. Is that what we do? Sunday by Sunday. I mean, we, are we coming together to clap our hands and make ourselves believe in fairies? The Nicene Creed articulates the concrete substance of our faith. Not just the things we vaguely feel or might want to believe, but the actualities at the heart of all true Christian doctrine. We are not just clapping our hands and believing in fairies. We are anchoring ourselves with all other Christians in absolute truth. Now, uh, one or two people don't like the Nicene Creed. And as we're starting a series, it would seem appropriate just to recognize that. Some people don't like the Nicene Creed. And uh, mostly they're non-Christians, especially sort of the new secular atheist type, you know, people. They don't like it very much. But also some Christians don't like it because they say, look, it was just a political tool. Constantine was trying to control the church as a vehicle for controlling his empire. And so you needed a clear statement so you could tell who was in and who was out. And, uh, you know, kill the heretics and all the rest of it. And so somebody said, well, we, we don't, it was just a political thing. The problem with that is this, that almost every phrase in the Nicene Creed either comes directly from the New Testament or it comes from earlier writings of the church fathers such as Irenaeus and Justin, uh, Martyr and Tertullian and so on. And uh, so this was not something that the, the council in Nicaea was making up. They were just formulating what they already thought. And there's, it's quite moving that it's almost certain that some of those church leaders who came to Nicaea were wounded, literally wounded. I mean, they're scarred and defaced from the persecutions they had received for believing this stuff. And they all knew people who had laid down their lives for these convictions. So they were getting together saying, what is it that we're laying our lives down for? What is it we truly believe? The second objection that some people have against the Nicene, Nicene Creed is this, and this comes from Christians. They say, why do we need creeds when we have got the Bible? It's a good question. Can we just say, well, I've got my Bible and that, that, that'll, that'll do for me? The problem is this, that the very same council who gave us the Nicene Creed also gave us the Bible. Up till then, there was lots of holy writings, Paul's writings, Peter's, John's, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So there were other writings, the Gospel of Thomas, 2nd Maccabees, different writings. And they, they said, which ones are in and which ones are out? Which ones are in the canon of Scripture? Which ones carry the authority and the weight to be in the Bible? And so it's a bit tricky to say, well, I don't need the creed because I've got the Bible, when the very people who gave us the Bible actually gave us the creed. And the other problem is this, that one of the reasons they wanted to formulate consensus around what it is we all believe, what's the Holy Spirit shown us, what did Jesus teach, and so on, is that there were all sorts of crazy beliefs that were springing up, damaging people, heresies, the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul wrote many of his letters about. Uh, and most of those heresies were rooted in misinterpretations of the Bible. 
So, for example, one of the biggies at the time was something called Arianism. Arianism was based on a misinterpretation of John uh, chapter 14, verse 28, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than me. And, he, and so Arius, who was alive at the time of this council, said, well, what that means is the Father is God. Jesus wasn't God. So they're going around saying, Jesus, really good guy, but not God. It's what Jehovah's Witnesses today believe, for example. And so, and so the council's coming together going, well, hang on a sec. We just leave people alone with the Bible. They can come up with all sorts of crazy ideas. We need some kind of, you know, we, we, we need a GPS. We need a set of, of lenses through which we can properly interpret and apply the Scriptures in consensus with all other believers. And so uh, this helps us. Now, today we are going to be just looking at the first eight words of the Nicene Creed, the first stop on our eight-part journey. And these eight words are, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Let's think about those words. We believe, first of all. Now, it is really significant that this starts as a we and not a me. Interestingly, we just sang a rendition of the Nicene Creed, a modern-day rendition and whoever did that, it's a brilliant song, but chose to change the we to an I. Did you notice that? We sang, I believe in God the Father. It's very interesting. In the modern world, that's our temp- tendency. Because without going to detail, since the Enlightenment, it's been, you know, every man is a rock, an island. Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It's highly individualistic. But the Nicene Creed is a we and not a me. It is corporate, not individualistic. This is super important. It means that it's not okay to say, do you know what? Instead of going to church on a Sunday, I just go for a walk in the countryside. That's my church. That's my worship. I tell you why that's a problem is because when you're just walking in the countryside, you're just going to believe whatever you happen to believe. It's all about your feelings, your state of mind. It's too limiting. It's too small. It's too subjective. Phil Collins. Uh, he wrote uh, that song, uh, well, many songs, but the theme tune for Tarzan, the movie. Moment of Confession, who's seen that movie, Tarzan? Okay. Some of you are looking like genuinely ashamed at this point. It's okay. Grace, grace. And um, the, the theme tune goes like this from dear old Phil Collins. Put your faith in what you most believe in. Trust your heart. What does that even mean? Put your faith in what you most believe in. Philip, what are you talking about? Trust your heart. Who here knows that your heart is not entirely reliable? You've ever experienced your... Who here knows the first person you fell head over heels in love with was really a psycho hose beast? You know, it quite a number of you, even more than what's Tarzan. Uh, you know, we can't always just trust our hearts. Oh, I believe this. I'm going to really believe it. My name's Adolf Hitler. No, anyway. Yeah, you understand? We need some objectivity here, not just, oh, it's so lovely you really believe what you believe. Except when you believe things that are really nasty or really untrue. It is vital, therefore, that we listen to other Christians. 
that we learn from other Christians, not just even other Christians today, but other Christians down 2,000 years, other Christians in other parts of the world. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher in the 1700s, formulated it like this. He said, in essentials, unity. That's the stuff in the Nicene Creed, essentials. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. It is important that we know what the essentials are because that's what we unite around. That's how, you know, Bill and I were just at a conference in Germany at the beginning of the week and the other uh, two speakers were Heidi Baker, who's a Pentecostal working amongst the poor in, 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 in Mozambique and uh, a Catholic bishop. What have we got in common? Do we believe all the same stuff? No, we don't. There are non-essentials on which we differ. But in essentials, we are utterly united. The Nicene Creed helps us to do that. I want to show you a video that illustrates this importance of we, not me. So take a look at this. Emma. 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 If you're listening online, Google Le Trefle Lou Paper video. We can't presume that all progress is positive, that technology will solve every problem, of course, that Google will lead us into all truth. We can't presume that we automatically know better than those born in other parts of the world or at other times in history. And in this age of relativity, uh, the, the Nicene Creed anchors us in a very big, very old, very diverse body. There are certain things, therefore, that I take on trust because they are what Christians have believed for 2,000 years across 2 billion people. I am aware of my own limitations. I'm aware that I sometimes change in the things I believe. I'm aware that uh, there are so many people who are much cleverer than me, people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Martin uh, Luther. So, for example, let's take the virgin birth. That's part of the Nicene Creed. Do I really believe that God came and was born of a virgin? And then some clever people will come along and say, ah, oh, yes, but Isaiah's prophecy about a virgin will conceive. That word there just means a young woman. It doesn't have to mean virgin in the sexual sense, and I think, oh, that's interesting, and then I think, hmm, and actually, wouldn't it be quite cool if the Son of God was born to a single mother? Wouldn't that be quite redemptive? And, and you know, you start to think around all that stuff, and I think, well, maybe, but then I come back to the fact of the Nicene Creed, and 2,000 years of Christian thought have said, no, God, God came in Christ and was born of a virgin. I say, do you know what? I'd have to be pretty sure to step out of line with what Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and millions of people down thousands of years have believed. Some things I just choose to believe because I am part of a family. 
I'm not kissing my brains goodbye. I mean, I'm not, they're things that are credible. It's just that you can have different perspectives on some things. As we think about the gay debate around gay marriage, of course it is vitally important that we are uh, loving and caring. Of course, uh, it is never any justification for homophobia. We must repent of that. Of course we must. We must also make sure that we do our thinking within the broad Christian tradition and not just within a little bubble of what makes sense to us in our little part of the world and our little time in history. Otherwise, we will be victims of our own time. Someone once said, he who marries the spirit of the age is widowed in the next. How can we be part of something bigger than our own small circumstances? We believe. But what do we believe in? Well, who do we believe in? Well, of course, we believe in one God. We are theists. We believe in God. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. This is important because the Jews said, oh, these Christians, they believe in three gods. They're polytheists. The Muslims today will come along and say, you guys, you don't believe in one God. You believe in three gods. The Jewish prayer, the Shema, that is recited to this day by Jewish believers several times a day, goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every night, last prayer before you go to sleep, if you're a Jewish kid, the Lord is one. And so the, the Council of Nicaea is, is going to wrestle with issues around the Trinity and, and God being three and yet being one. And so right at the start they say, we believe in one God. We are monotheists. We are not poly. We are rooted in Judaism as we think about Trinity. Belief in God is contested in our part of the world and our time in history as never before. So I was fascinated this week to read a report from the World Economic Forum. They say this, the growth of religious populations worldwide is projected to be, listen, 23 times larger than the growth of the unreligious between 2010 and 2050. In other words, uh, you know, we can live in a part of the world where we think, oh, atheism, that's the big new thing. Oh, yeah, it's big. Everyone's into atheism. They're either there, they want to be Jedi Knights, or they want to be atheists these days. We've got to understand we live in this tiny bubble. It's not really true. It's not really real, or it's only partially true. That the global picture is this that atheism is growing very, very, very slowly, barely at all, but that cultures that believe in God are growing 23 times faster. Belief in God is normative for the human condition, has been right from the start. If you're going to adopt an atheistic position, you need to justify that. You need to find ways of arguing for that, and, and good for you if you do, as long as you do it compassionately and kindly with grace towards others. But to believe in God is normative. It is intellectually credible. It is philosophically sensible. You may remember Pascal's great wager, where he said, look, all of us are forced to take uh, a wager on the existence of God. We bet with our lives on the existence of God. And what we find is this. If God exists, the stakes are infinitely high about what we do or don't do with our lives. But if God doesn't exist, the risks are merely finite. 
i.e. you believe in God. If he doesn't exist, you're going to miss out maybe on one or two pleasures, one or two luxuries, but that's it. It doesn't really matter. The rational choice, therefore, says Pascal, is theism, is to believe in God, if you're not sure. The question then, of course, is, okay, so it's a we, not a me. We believe in God, one God. But what is that God like? And the creed says, we believe in one God who is the Father Almighty. The Father Almighty. You almost certainly remember that on the 7th of January last year, 2015, two gunmen broke into the offices of Charlie Hebdo in uh, Paris and killed 11 people and injured another 11. And to mark the anniversary of, of that atrocity, Charlie Hebdo uh, this week brought out a, a special edition of their magazine, and this is the cover. Uh, and uh, so it's a picture of God uh, with blood all over his robes and a Kalashnikov on his back looking angry, and the title obviously means the real assassin is still on the run. God is to blame. And when I first heard that and listened to the editor on the, on the news uh, talking about it, my huckles were raised. But then as I thought about it and as I looked at the cover, I realized I agree with it absolutely entirely. Christians should say amen to that. I tell you why. It is because the God that they don't believe in is the God that we don't believe in too. We do not believe in a God who is angrily running from the scene of the crime with a Kalashnikov on his back covered in blood. We believe in God the Father, a God of love expressed in Jesus, as we will see, who said, love your enemies. Walter Wink, the theologian, once said, against some images of God, the revolt of atheism is an act of pure religion. The Nicene Creed says that our image of God matters. The God we believe in is a Father Almighty. We've just been singing it. You're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. Jesus taught us to pray to our Father in heaven. And he told that beautiful story about the prodigal son that probably shows us more about his view of God as Father than any other. And so I just want to draw this talk together by exploring that story, and then we're going to pray for some people. You know it well, so let me just recap for you. Jesus is standing in front of a crowd of people. Of course, they were all Jewish. They knew the doctrines of Old Testament faith. And uh, Jesus describes this extraordinary scenario in which two sons are living with their father, and the younger son goes to the dad and says the most outrageous thing. He basically says, I wish you were dead. I, I don't want to wait for you to die. Give me my inheritance now. Can you imagine anything more outrageous than that? And, and so the, the, the crowd is listening, and they're thinking... That's terrible. 
The scriptures say, honor your father, that all may go well with you now. That is the most dishonoring thing I can imagine. What is the father going to do? Come on, Jesus, tell us. Is he going to cast him out of the family? He's the youngest son. You don't even need him. And Jesus looks at them, twinkle in his eye, and he says, father gave him the money. <gasps> wow, what kind of dad is this? Is he weak? Is he soft? Is he crazy? And the son goes off with everything his dad's ever worked for, or half of it at least, and he spends it on just crazy loose living on, I don't know, camels bred by Ferrari. I don't know, what did you spend lots of money on back then? Hummus and, and, and you know, amazing togas and women. They had women back then. And, and um, <laughs> I've studied it. And, uh, you know, uh, and so he wasted all this money. He didn't just waste it. He wasted it on sinful stuff, and then he ends up getting the worst job that a Jewish person could imagine you getting. He ended up working with pigs. <gasps> and not just working with them, but Jesus trying to rub it in, really trying to wind up the crowd. He says, sometimes he got so hungry, he ate the food of the pigs. Here are people who have never, ever had a bacon sandwich in their lives because it's so unclean, and Jesus is going, he was eating the food that was given to the pigs that you're not even allowed to eat. He's playing with them. He, it's as dirty as you can be. It's shocking. One contemporary Jewish writer says this, there is probably no animal as disgusting to Jewish sensitivities as the pig. It is not just because it, was not, it may not be eaten. There are plenty of other animals that aren't kosher either. But none of them arouse as much disgust as the pig. Colloquially, the pig is the ultimate symbol of loathing. The rabbis pronounced a curse on anyone who raised a pig. The prodigal was raising pigs. Cursed, dirty, disgusting. It means that if Jesus was here physically, he would look you in the eye and he would say to you, this is what you must know about God the Father. There is nothing you can do to make you too sinful for the Father. You cannot be too far away. You cannot be too dirty, too broken. He, he's, he's trying to think of the worst possible sin that you can possibly be in. And this is his epitome that reveals the extent of the grace of the Father. You cannot be too sinful for God today, only too proud to come home. And so the son realizes that his father's hired servants get a better deal than him. And he formulates a little speech he's going to make to his dad and a deal he's going to try and do so that he can go back and he knows he can't go back and just be a son, right? But, hey, let's be a servant. Let's see if my dad will have that much grace. You know, there are some of us today that we believe in the grace of God, but we're so ashamed of ourselves that we can only really imagine being servants in the house of the Father. Uh, it's beyond what we've managed to believe so far that we might be welcomed back in as equals, as sons and daughters. We do those deals. We feel such shame. 
So he makes his speech. It's what we all do. When we're broken, we play religious games. We trade pieces with the Almighty. He comes with it. I imagine it was scribbled on a bit of paper in his back pocket, and he was repeating it in his head over and over as he walked back. And he's walking slowly, slouched down, stinking to high heaven. And we read that the Father was watching out for him. He's been gone such a long time. You can't blow that much money that quickly. Day after day, night after night, week and even month after month, the Father has been looking out for the Son. And people have been saying to the Father, what are you playing at? He's shafted you. He's messed you about. What, what's got into you? You shouldn't even give him the money in the first place. Now don't waste your life. We've got a farm to run. You've got a perfectly good son here. But day after day, he's watching. Listen, the Father is watching your every movement, your every thought for that choice, that moment, that step that you take back towards him. And the moment that the Father sees the Son walking, shuffling down the road, we read that He runs towards Him. Listen, you might think that a gracious Father would sort of wait and say, well, let's just see what He's got to say. Let's hear the apology. And then I'll decide whether He's really sorry or not. And would maybe stand there, kind of a little casually, arms folded. But there's something in the heart of God that is more visceral, more immediate than that, and can't just play it cool because he's seen his kid. And the moment that the sun appears, he runs towards him in a culture where it's hot. You don't run. And he's old and dignified, and he would have had to have pulled up his skirts above his knees and run looking like an idiot. The father doesn't care if he looks unrespectable because he loves his kids. He's not worried about outward appearances. He is passionate about your heart. And then he reaches the sun, and we read that he throws his arms around him and kisses him. And the Jews are freaking out at this moment because they know that this boy is as ritually unclean as you can be. And if you touch someone who's ritually unclean, you get dirty too. And they're thinking, hang on, you're pushing us too far. And we were offended by the whole pig thing. But you're now talking about Yahweh. We know what you're talking about. And you're saying that the Holy One of Israel makes himself dirty with our sin. This is before the cross, right? Jesus is saying, yeah, as Paul would later say, while well, we're still sinners, we're still covered in crap, he wraps his arms around us and dies for us, loves us and forgives us. This is the heart of the Father Almighty, the one we believe in. And then he trying to trots out his little speech, I've sinned, I'm not worthy. And the Father goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we read he puts a robe on around his shoulders. And he puts shoes on his feet in that culture. If you were barefoot, you were a slave. Shoes meant you were a son. So he's immediately going, don't you give me any of this nonsense about being my servant. You're my son. And no one's going to take that away. And then he puts a ring on his finger. Now listen, the ring was the symbol of inheritance, family. The ring was a credit card too. You might give your ring to a senior servant and say, go buy me a couple of cows. 
and they'd go and they'd imprint the ring in the wax and it was a guarantee that your master would pay. So get this one second. Let this blow our minds afresh today. The son has taken the inheritance and wasted it, acted with complete irresponsibility. And the moment he gets back to the father, before he has even apologized, the father has handed him a credit card. Most of us, our problem with God is not that He doesn't trust us enough. It's that He trusts us too much. And we think, why do you give me so many choices? Why do you take my choices so seriously? Don't you know what an idiot I am? Don't you know what a sinner I am? Could you please give me a little bit less self-determination? Stop trusting me so much. It's not that He doesn't love us enough. He loves us too much. You're dirty and hurting. And He terrifies and embarrasses you by throwing His arms around you. Get away from me. Don't you know how sinful I am? What makes you love me? What is this compulsion within you? We believe in God, the Father Almighty. I defy you today to take one step towards this Father because He will come running. He has been watching. He will throw His arms around you. He will rehire you, re-adopt you, start trusting you again, pour His love out upon you and throw a party you. I want to conclude with the most beautiful reading. This is uh, a book appropriately titled, I Dared to Call Him Father, by a Pakistani Muslim woman, a very senior woman in Pakistan at the time. Her name is Bilkwish Sheikh. And she tells this extraordinary story about encountering God, Allah, as Father. And um, See, her dad was a very, very good dad. She'd loved him dearly. He'd always had time for her, always been kind to her. And he died. And one night, lying in her bed, she was thinking about her dad and missing him. And then the most ridiculous idea came into her head. She was thanking Allah, God, for her human father. And then she found herself wishing that Allah, God, could be like her human father. Suddenly a breakthrough of hope flooded me. Suppose, just suppose, God were like a father. If my earthly father would put aside everything to listen to me, wouldn't my heavenly father? Shaking with excitement, I got out of bed, sank to my knees on the rug, looked up to heaven, and in rich new understanding called God my father. But I was not prepared for what happened. Hesitantly, I spoke his name aloud, Father, Father God. I tried different ways of speaking to him, and then, as if something broke through for me, I found myself trusting that he was indeed hearing me, just as my earthly father had always done. Father, oh, my father God, I cried with growing confidence. My voice seemed unusually loud in the large bedroom as I knelt on the rug beside my bed, but suddenly that room wasn't empty anymore. He was there. 
I could sense his presence. I could feel his hand laid gently on my head. It was as if I could see his eyes filled with love and compassion. He was so close that I found myself laying my head on his knees like a little girl sitting at her father's feet. And for a long time, I knelt there sobbing quietly, floating in his love. I found myself talking with him, apologizing for not having known him before. And again came his loving compassion like a warm blanket settling around me. I am confused, Father, I said. I have to get one thing straight right away. I reached over to the bedside table where I kept the Bible and the Quran side by side. I picked up both books and lifted them, one in each hand. Which one, Father? Which one is your book? Then a remarkable thing happened. Nothing like it had ever occurred in my life in quite this way. I heard a voice inside my being, a voice that spoke to me as clearly as if I were repeating words in my inner mind. They were fresh, full of kindness, yet at the same time full of authority. In which book do you meet me as your father? I found myself answering, in the Bible. That's all it took. Now there was no question in my mind which one was his book. I looked at my watch and was astonished to discover that three hours had passed, yet I was not tired. I wanted to go on praying. I wanted to read the Bible, for I knew now that my father would speak through it. I wonder if the musicians could just um, come back up. I'd love us to pray together. I wonder if um, perhaps for some of us there's a challenge today around we, not me. The invitation is coming to you today to come in from the cold and to commit to a creedal community with all the discomfort and joy of that. Not just to wander around thinking, I'll believe what I believe, and if someone disagrees with me, I'll avoid them, but I'm going to come and be part, not just of a church, but of the church. Maybe you've been hurt by church, hurt by the beliefs of others. Well, in essentials, unity, but in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. Or maybe the challenge for you today is this thing of just believing. You're asking questions about faith. You don't have to kiss your brains goodbye to believe this stuff, but you do have to believe. You'll never think your way the whole way to the top of the stairs. Alpha starts a week on Tuesday. It's the perfect opportunity, perfect vehicle for asking the questions that you've got. Or maybe for you today, the challenge is around God as Father. You believe in God, but the kind of prodigal father that I've described is one that you long for, maybe struggle with. Maybe you need a fresh revelation today of how wide and long and high and deep is the love the Father has for you. You know, the love of the Father casts out fear, the Bible says. We all live with so much fear, so much fear in our lives, our futures, our finances. 
If we're not careful, fear gets in the driving seat of our lives. But God is love, and he wants to cast out fear. And I want you to hear the violence of that. Fear is cast out. It's not just gently asked to move. Love's not nice. There's a violence to love. None of us need more information about God. We need a revelation of God, the Father Almighty. And the Holy Spirit loves to do that, to come and fill us. In fact, Romans 8 says that when the Spirit fills us, we begin to cry out, Abba, Father. Well, finally, maybe for some of us today, we are like that prodigal son. We're far from the Father's house. We've been away. There was someone in the first service came to me, very moved, said, I've been away for a year and a half. Totally turned my back on God. I heard you talk. I know it's time to come home. He'd been deeply hurt by something. But he said, I know it's time to come home. I defy you to take one step towards the Father today. Let's stand together, shall we?